You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I'm Jack Death. I'm a trooper in the 23rd century. Jack Death, Angel City PD, may I see your stats? What did I do? Under Section 7 of the Penal Code, the council authorized me to administer you a transfer suspect examination. You can't give me a TSE without a warrant. I got your warrant right here, pal. Okay, okay, okay. I don't want any trouble. Hold that. My job is hunting transfers. I got nothing to hide. Finding them. Negative. And singeing them. Look out! Sometimes they find me first. Then it's a little more complicated. How do you know Whistler's location? We monitored a line disruption in Los Angeles, December 1985. Van Zant, Ash, and I all had ancestors in the city then. If you think I'm bringing that scum up the line, you got the wrong trooper. Unless you stop Whistler. Everything the council has accomplished for the last 40 years will count for nothing. Okay, let's say I believe this. You're a cop from the future and you're chasing this guy, Piper. Whistler. Why doesn't he just turn you into one of these zombies? Or me? Trancing only works on squids. People with weak minds, easily controlled. Lena, I'm from another time, another world. I don't even know what you people eat for lunch. Okay, I got fried rice, egg rolls, and beef chow mein. Beef? You like from a cow? I thought it was rough in the 23rd century. I didn't know how hot it could get. Jack? How's my tan? It was getting hotter all the time. Jack? I guess I just attract a certain element no matter what century I'm in. I gotta run now. I wanna ride with the lady. Over here, Ashby! never even been here before. Trancers. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Man, the coffee in this joint is brutal. Also with us this week is Jay Bowman of Red Letter Media. Um, guys, we've got trouble at the North Pole. This week we are talking about the sci-fi flick Trancers. Directed by Charles Band, the film stars Tim Thomerson as Jack Death, a detective from the future who travels back in time to track down a cultish criminal named Whistler. He ends up in Los Angeles 1984, where he tries to save the relatives of those who run the L.A. of the future. Trancers would go on to spawn five and a half sequels that spanned over 18 years. Just so folks know, we're going to be getting into some spoiler territory this week. Trancers is readily available on DVD and Blu-ray, so if you don't want us to ruin anything for you, go pick up a copy, watch it, and return to us. We will be waiting for you. 
Jay, as our guest this week, when was the first time you saw Trancers, and what did you think? Uh, well, I actually saw all of the sequels years before I ever saw the original movie, because uh, I grew up in the, the heyday of video stores and the, uh, the golden age of full moon, so I watched everything they released the week it came out. So I saw ads for Trancers 2, and I'd never seen Trancers, and it just wasn't available anywhere. So I just watched all the sequels as they came out when I was you know, 11, 12, 13. Cut to 22? I was about 21 or 22, and I was at a film festival in South Dakota. And there's nothing to do in South Dakota except go to the pawn shops when you're trying to kill time. And this one pawn shop just had a ton of VHS tapes, and they had the original Trancers. So I bought Trancers... And I bought Elves starring uh, uh, Grizzly Adams. And nice. when I got back, <laughs> yes. And when I got back to uh, to Milwaukee, I watched the original Trancers, and it was nice to finally see it after seeing the sequels, kind of growing up with the sequels. And I thought it was a really charming, if not really slight, B movie. I think it's it's barely over an hour. Uh, there's not a lot to it, and most of the story makes no sense whatsoever. But it it stays entertaining and enjoyable because of all the the little touches. There's so many little things. Uh, uh, the idea that the, the the future cop is like this uh, film noir Raymond Chandler type detective. Uh, Helen Hunt being a punk rocker, having it set at Christmas. Uh, the the future slang, dry hairs for squids, that type of thing. So it's a, it's a movie that works despite the fact that most of it doesn't make any sense, and it's all a ripoff of Terminator and Blade Runner. Man, I wish my story was as good as Jay's. I feel totally lame to say that I just watched Transfers for the first time last week. So I, man. <laughs> Your story doesn't involve elves with starring Dan No, Hattie? actually, let, let, let me start this again. Actually, I was in the jungle, and these guides led me into this cave, and I found the VHS copy there, and I had to like trade it out with a bag of sand that was about the same weight, but I messed up, and then this giant boulder kind of like followed me out. No, that's Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, no, I, I just watched this for the first time last week. As a matter of fact, this is one of the you know sort of, uh, I, I guess you could say, franchises that I knew absolutely nothing about, and I used to work in a video store, so I, I don't really remember watching much of the Full Moon stuff either, so I'm, I'm kind of ignorant on, on Charles Band, sorry. No, no reason to be sorry about it. I mean, Full Moon, I, I used to think that I knew a lot about Full Moon, and then when I was talking to somebody who does know a lot about it, I was just like, oh yeah, well, I love this movie, and they're like, yeah, no, that's not Full Moon. Well, how about this? No, no, that's not Full Moon either. I was like, oh, okay. I guess anything that had the same kind of box art, I was kind of confusing with Full Moon, but I did see Trancers. I probably saw it in oh, maybe 86 or 88. And I won't say that I fell in love with the movie, but I definitely, I just really liked it and it held a really special place in my heart. So then years later, when I watched it again, probably like middle of last year, I'm watching this film and I'm just like, oh my God, I can quote this dialogue from memory. And I've only seen this movie one time. I had never seen any of the sequels. They came out, I think starting in like 91, even though I was still working at video stores in 91, I just never checked out any of the sequels. And 
going, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this a lot more later on in the show, but I'm really kind of glad that I didn't see a lot of the sequels. Cause I think that would have kind of tainted my opinion of the original as it was. I was glad that I waited until just a few months ago to check those out. So let's talk a little bit more about the plot. As Jay mentioned, there's kind of this film noir vibe going on where we start off in the future with uh, Jack death coming to this diner, very typical noir setting, but we get uh, right away that this is the future where we have him in this impossibly, I love the shoulder pads and this outfit that he's wearing. And he's got this crazy future car shows up at this diner and he's there to check for uh, transfers. There's only two people in the uh, diner and he goes up to the most obvious looking candidate and tries to run a scan on this guy. And when he doesn't turn out to be a transfer, uh, all hell breaks loose when it ends up being the sweet old lady who's running the counter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she went off to get him the coffee, and I was just amazed at uh, how this sweet old lady can really kick some butt. She almost knows kung fu. Yeah, this that opening scene, like that, kind of hooks you right away because it's got such an interesting visual style to it that I think maybe the rest of the movie is lacking a bit. But lots of neon. You had mentioned the padded shoulders. You could tell this is the '80s interpretation of the future, where they thought shoulder pads were just going to get larger and larger. Pretty soon, our heads would just get swallowed up by shoulders pads. I think actually that was just the ladies' outfit, wasn't? He was just borrowing the ladies, uh, you know. Sport coats of the era because those those women's uh, fashions of the era had those huge shoulder pads. I remember. I know we talked. Uh, we watched uh, Working Girls on the show, but Working Girl, the Melanie Griffith film from about the same era. Man, they look like a bunch of linebackers with those shoulder pads and those uh, you know <laughs> those those work uh, those work suits, those ladies' work suits of the eighties. Oh, so it's less them trying to interpret the future and more. Uh, them just using modern clothes and not trying to make it look like the future. Yeah, pretty much. Though I have to say, I really like his boss's outfit. He's got this kind of like maroon suit going on, and I, I think it's pretty darn sharp. It looks like something out of the Super Mario Brothers movie. That's kind of an insult to transfers, I have to say. <laughs> so it's pretty quick. We get this nice setup. We get the whole thing. You know, he's on the outs with his boss. You know, we've talked about the whole idea of the noir detective as either being part of the police department or being on the outs with the de- police department. This one, he's definitely on the outs. He throws his badge away because he's he really just wants to take down transfers because a transfer killed his wife years ago. So we go pretty quickly into this whole idea of the police department needing Jack Death to come back. We see what the future is like in California, where most of the city of, of Los Angeles, which is now, what, the city of Lost Angels, I think they're calling it, that is all completely underwater. And he's doing kind of a uh, mariner from Waterworld thing and going out and, and uh, taking stuff out of the city and not necessarily understanding it 100%. It's already like, what, 2300? Hundred uh, or two thousand three hundred or something like that. Twenty thirty five, maybe something like that. Yeah, twenty thirty five, twenty thirty six, whatever it takes. And we have a scene where he gets in front of the council, and the council has a crisis because they are disappearing. Whistler, who Jack Death thought that he had slain, has gone back in the past and is now killing the relatives of these folks and thus wiping out their line completely. So yeah, totally the Terminator kind of idea. Can anyone tell me what the council is? Is that the U S government in the future? Is it a Los Angeles thing? 
I'm not sure the extent of their power. I would like to read their charter. Uh, yeah, I would hope it's not the entire U.S. government because it's just three old people. By this time, we only see two. That's true. Yeah, one of them's dead even. This is all we got left. And I thought for sure that um, – I think it's Richard Hurd, the uh, – Chairman Spencer guy, I thought for sure he was going to end up being bad because he almost always seems to play a bad guy in these movies. And I kept waiting for him to get possessed and try to take out Jack Death. But no, no, we don't get that scene. You're asking for a little too much plot from Trancers. But we do quickly get into this whole idea of the time travel. And I like this idea that you're not traveling physically, but it's more your spirit is going back. It's very days of future past, I have to say. Yeah, it's very – it's your consciousness gets sent back in time to a, a relative of yours, a blood relative. And that's that's something different. That's one of the things I always liked about this movie is just the, the technology or the, the way that you are sent – you travel through time in it. And I very much like that uh, he very much plays by his own rules. Like he sees the body of Whistler that they have kind of keeping them on, on on ice and, you know, oh, you can go get him and bring him back and then we'll put him on trial. And he just kills the body and just he's going to uh, take care of Whistler in the past. And that's it. You're playing by my rules now. So we get back to the past Pretty. I mean, I think, yeah, Jay, you mentioned the pace of this movie. It goes quickly because I don't even think we're 15 minutes into the movie by the time that we are meeting Helen Hunt and he's back in the body of Phil Death, who apparently was um, didn't really have a steady job or something. He was a, r- a reporter, but he never shows up to work again, as far as I know, and nobody ever calls or anything. So, But I know, I'm again, I'm looking for too much logic in this movie. Now, speaking of the logic and part me if if i missed something so he's inhabiting the body of this other guy so so that's why she doesn't freak out because i was sort of like you know she's like you're acting weird and stuff like that i go yeah because he's a totally different person than who you were just sleeping with yeah luckily the person whose body travels back into looks exactly like him in the future it's just a coincidence but it, it works to his advantage well his hair is more gray in the past i think he's got darker hair in the future and that's about it and of course the hairstyle because you know he's he's wearing the, the dry hair in the past and then he has to you know give himself the wet look dry hairs for squids yeah jack death wants nothing to do with that I always feel bad for Phil death because Phil goes away. Phil's not here now <laughs> and and he never comes back. Phil just, I don't know if his consciousness goes into the future. I mean, he comes back at one point, which I kind of like that at one point, Jack and Lena, the Helen hunt character that we're about to introduce that they're having sex and his boss comes in and kind of zaps him back into the future and denies him, you know, the whoopee making and stuff. But we never see Phil and Phil just kind of goes away. Jack takes over his body. So basically he kind of murders his own ancestor or just kind of co-ops this guy's body forever. I wish there was a scene in this movie. Like you mentioned, there is a point when Jack gets sent back up the line, they call it, which is a nice Mm -hmm. terminology. And Phil uh, is back in charge of his own consciousness uh, just in time to have sex with Helen Hunt. And I'm just imagining, I wish there was a scene where you see Phil come back into his own being as they're in the middle of being intimate and just being like, what the hell is happening? I guess I'll just go with it. Yeah, well, here comes Phil coming back to be like the pinch hitter or something. <laughs> well, Phil, I hope you enjoyed yourself again. 
Helen Hunt as a punk rocker. I didn't really realize that she was a punk rocker, even though she has blue in her hair and she hangs out at a punk rock club at some point. But I did not peg her as a punk rocker. I just love the uh, punk rock Christmas carols. Yes, that's one of my favorite parts of the movie is the punk rock version of Jingle Bells. Felt very Terminator esque as far as you know being in the club and everything, though not nearly as many people in this club as there were in the one that Sarah Connor goes to. No, it's a little more sparse. It's all they could afford. Right. It's like, hey, we're having a party. We're shooting this movie. Bring all your friends. And it's like, I don't really have a lot of friends. Okay, then just bring the one friend you have, I guess. Is there going to be food, Charles? Um, yeah, like like snacks and stuff, like some corn chips. The same corn chips that we ate yesterday. Well, don't don't worry about it. Yeah, this this movie it it has a tight budget, but I think it really does well with what it has. Like the whole idea of transferring back to consciousness, so you don't have to do like different actors. You don't have to you know. There's no robots going on in here. Things just kind of like appear in the past, which is kind of nice. Like they can send back this metal box with old pictures and his uh, cool wristwatch and everything and his uh, gun and everything. And I like that whole idea of the the wristwatch where he's got the long second where clicking on that can make one second of normal time seem like 10 seconds to him, even though it seems like it kind of goes on for longer than 10 seconds. But I wasn't there counting it out, you know, being that kind of a movie nerd. Well, because of that, you end up with the, um, I guess would be the proto matrix scene with the bullet. Oh yeah. So I was like, Hey, it's like the matrix, but 15 years earlier and not as freaky, I guess. Cause you only had one camera as opposed to the multiple setup, but, uh, the whole, like, you know, uh, not getting hit by the bullet thing. And, and then the, uh, of course the, the catch of the person thrown off the roof or jumps out the window. I can't remember which gets pushed off the roof. Yeah. When Helen, Hunt, yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, you were talking about, yeah, it is uh, low budget and all that stuff. I think the reason why it works so well is that Thomerson and Helen Hunt are really good. Like yes. the like the acting in here is like better than you would expect. Like you would say, oh, you know, it's a it's a rather cheap little film. I'm sure the acting's going to be crappy. No, actually, they're all really good. They're like all better than they should be, and I think that's the reason why it works. Yeah, their their dynamic and their relationship, their budding relationship throughout the movie, gives it a lot more heart than I'm sure Charles Band originally planned for the movie to have. But those two just have a lot of chemistry together. Well, I have to say, it's a very well-written script. The script that I read is super close to what ends up being on screen, but yeah, really it all lives and dies by these actors and all the way down, down the line, as it were, everybody seems to be doing a really good job. I mean, the guy who plays Whistler is barely on screen, so I can't really say if he does a really good job or not, but I have to say like Art Lafleur as his boss and Thelma Hopkins as the engineer. I mean, great great stuff and i like when we get more of them it's not like you know oh god we're back to this character again i like the relationship and even the little girl who plays the uh, the young version or the uh past version of mcnulty i think she does a really good job too which is kind of weird that a child actor a and then a child actor in a low budget film b pulls it off as well as they do speaking of that little girl that's the whole thing is you you get you travel through time into the subconscious of one of your relatives. So McNulty ends up getting sent back into the the body of this little girl. And she says at one point, this, this is the only ancestor I could find. 
But in that same scene, she also mentions that she had to sneak out past her parents. So why couldn't she just go? Why couldn't uh, McNulty just go to the body of one of the parents? Yeah, that's kind of weird. <laughs> but maybe it's like you have to match up with the right thing. Yeah, I don't know. Again, <laughs> you I think if you were to start guessing on stuff, you would, you know, your brain would explode pretty quickly. Most of the details don't make a lot of sense. I do have to say, as we get to know the guy that plays Hap Ashby in the subsequent films, maybe not the best actor in the world, but luckily Hap is very, very, very small part in this first film. Well, supposedly that actor was also because his character is a drunk. He's a former ball player and he's now, uh, you know, living on the streets and he's a drunk. Apparently he was drunk for real while they were shooting the movie. I don't know if that was really? I don't know if that was him trying to get into character or if that was just his own personal issues but yeah uh he was he was drunk through most of the shooting according to uh to Tim Thomerson uh, the method yes all about the method and yeah I do like that this is a Christmas movie even though again doesn't really play into the story or anything, but I like this whole idea of the Santa Claus in the past turning into a trancer, the three wise men that they run into at one point who are three homeless guys standing around a fire and everything. I like these kind of little turns, and I like, the the again, the punk rock Christmas songs. Very nice kind of thing. And I don't necessarily understand how transferring works, but uh, again, one of those, I just have to go with it for the movie kind of thing. I love the Santa Claus that turns. The whole like mall Santa thing is hilarious, and the little kid who's just so greedy and listing off all the things he wants, and then the Santa just, you know, we find Shoves out. Shoves him off his lap, you know, yeah. And there's like this you know, crazy scene at the mall, which that would just be fun on its own without crazy trancers yeah i love that scene because trancers are well i guess i would have to ask you guys what a trancer is because i'm still not sure but yeah tim thomerson is fighting this small santa that's been turned into a trancer fist fighting and shooting him to death in front of a group of small children which is enjoyable <laughs> and then one of that that same kid that was sitting on his lap he delivers the line santa claus but his line delivery is the most bizarre thing I don't know what uh, in, uh, inflection he was supposed to be giving it, but it's yeah, it's a fun scene. To me, the the first scene that involves someone turning it's the the lady in the diner, and, and the only thing I could think to myself is like zombie film or something, you know, like something takes over and they attack you. So, and then he explains later that. Well, she's uh, the Helen Hunt character says, well, well, how come I haven't turned or something like that? And he goes, because you're too mentally strong. So it, it becomes this thing of, you know, are you, you know, mentally tough enough not to be taken over through mind control, I guess. Very Manchurian candidate kind of thing, I guess. The force can have a strong influence on the weak mind. And it's not necessarily by proximity or something, because it's like... He's saving Hap Ashby, who's the um, progenitor of Chairman Ash, but then there's the Chairman Spencer guy who his uh, relative works at this tanning shop, and he just turns like that. Like, all of a sudden he is – and same thing with the Santa Claus. It's like Whistler couldn't have known that Jack was going to this mall and all this kind of stuff, but all of a sudden this guy turned. So it's just kind of – it's really convenience of the plot as far as – when people turn into transfers and when they don't and this kind of stuff. But yeah, it's just kind of like, why is this guy turning? And I do love, speaking of the guy at the uh, tanning salon, I love that they use a line from, I think it's Lady in the Lake, when 
Thomerson comes in and sees the guy and he's like, oh, I love your tan. Very Christmassy. And it's like, okay, that's the kind of stuff I love in this film. You know, you're talking about the little things that really make a difference in this. And that's one of those for me. Yeah. Another moment in that scene that I didn't notice till the, the most recent time I watched it is as they're going back to the uh, one of the tanning rooms, Jack Duff puts his cigarette out in the guy's drink. Yeah, Thomerson is just, he's amazing in this, and he's so watchable. I just, it really doesn't matter what a whole lot of what else is going on, because he is so watchable. And I have to say, I've never really been a big Helen Hunt fan, like, just mostly because, not of her, but just more of the movies that she's been in. I was not a big As Good As It Gets fan. I hated Mad About You. So I just uh, have never really seen her in anything where I'm like, oh yeah, she's really good. But she's really good in Trancers, which you know, if only she had made more movies like Trancers. <laughs> and wasn't she also like after school special? Wasn't she like a teenage uh, actress? That might be Lily Sobieski. No, I'm just kidding. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, she was just an eyes wide shut. That's all. Oh, okay. They no, kind of look no, alike. That's, oh God, they are. To- it's weird. They must like, you know, if, if Helen Hunt ever needs to go back in time, she's going to end up in Lily Sobieski's body. <laughs> yeah, uh, Helen Hunt. I know she was in like Swiss Family Robinson, and she was in Roller Coaster, which our friends over at Outside the Cinema they've talked about that movie before. That's one of those. This movie is way better than it has any right to be, which I kind of think Transfers kind of falls into that uh, that same. You know, pool. Yeah, absolutely. I know that people compare this a lot to Blade Runner, and I guess I'm seeing the Blade Runner when it comes to uh, hunting down the trancers, kind of like hunting down the replicants. But I'm really seeing the Terminator even more than I'm seeing the Blade Runner in this one. Well, I mean, for me, not having seen the first Terminator in many years and being more familiar with Blade Runner, there's several things. I mean, there's the design aspect in the beginning. There's the whole sort of tracking down the the trancers and then there's also like i'm going to give you this test or whatever that he does to the guy in the diner he tries to give him that test which you know there's the test in blade runner to find out if you're a replicant so there are several elements that for me were you know blade runner specific but that whole time travel thing is totally you know um terminator when was terminator out was that the same year as this 84 Okay, which was the same thing. So either they jumped on it at the same time, or they both uh, watched that Harlan Ellison thing at the same time. No, <laughs> they both uh, were inspired. Yeah. But, you know, it could just be that uh, Terminator came out earlier and they got on this really quickly. But yeah, this is uh, there's definitely some similarities here. I'm going to guess that Charles Band saw Terminator and whipped this movie together in like three months. That works. <laughs> the one thing where Thomerson maybe isn't acting the best, it cracks me up every single time I watch this movie. Have you guys paid attention to how he drives in the film? Oh, how could you not notice that? Oh, my God. <laughs> the most amazing thing. It's so great. For people who haven't seen the movie, you know, obviously they're not letting the actors drive and they're, you know, they're, they've put the car onto a trailer and they're pulling the car. And Thomerson is just turning that steering wheel all over the place. I mean, he's driving like, like Cary Grant from North by Northwest. It is just all over, you know, like they would be swerving around 
road like crazy <laughs> and just but not paying any attention to where he's going, just looking at Helen Hunt the whole time and just got his hands just going all over the wheel. And it's every time it's just like, man, it, it just cracks me up. I, I'm wondering if that's the first time Tim Thomerson ever worked on a, a movie car where that's being you know, pulled by a trailer or whatever. And but what I wonder is, how did nobody notice or say anything to him during the the shooting of that scene? Right. <laughs> uh, Tim, you might want to just kind of calm it down a little bit. I'm sure they did first take for almost everything, but that was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> Have you ever driven a car before? I know you drove a motorcycle in the Osterman weekend, but have you ever driven a car? You really shouldn't be doing that. He's also not looking at the road for a lot of it. He keeps looking over at at, uh, at Helen Hunt for long stretches of time as he violently, you know, uh, turns the wheel back and forth. <laughs> well, Helen Hunt is actually looking very good in this movie, so I I would probably be looking at her as well. It's the blue streak in the hair. Oh That's yeah, does it. which would uh, later inspire a Martin Lawrence film. Oh my God. Not a sequel, it's a sidequel. So yeah, as you said, Jay, this is a really, really quick movie. Just goes along and hits all the beats that you kind of expect it to hit. And I mean, I think you're right. I want to say this is uh, less than 90 minutes. We are in and out. And we get um, a little bit more of Wessler, though we don't get a whole lot. Oh, I do want to say as far as performances go, I did notice our old friend Boom Mike show up in this movie today when I was watching it. I don't know why it took me like five times before I noticed it, but there's a scene where they're on these scooters and the Boom Mike is just there like waiting for them. <laughs> oh, you must you must not have watched the uh, the Blu-ray release then where it's in the proper aspect ratio. It's oh, cut, it's no. cut out of that, but every all previous releases, yeah, that boom mic is just right there. You know, it's really bad because I bought the Blu-ray, but I've just been watching the VHS transfer this whole time. I still haven't gone in and cracked the case on the Blu-ray. Well, something interesting about the previous releases before this Blu-ray, and maybe this isn't interesting to anybody but me. I have no idea. But the the punk rock scene, in the middle of the punk rock scene on all the previous DVD releases, right in the middle of it, there's this awkward cut to black for a few seconds. And that's because it was a direct rip from the Laserdisc version. Oh, and God. that's the point when you have to flip the disc over. And they never <laughs> oh. bothered to get rid of that for the DVD release until this new Blu-ray. The Blu-ray does not have that, and I almost miss it now. Oh, that oh. is so awful. Man. <laughs> I thought, like, bad VHS, like, transfers to DVD were bad. That's even worse. Oh, that is terrible. At least it didn't say, like, end of side one at one <laughs> Please point. Please flip disc. That'd be very confusing to people. So yeah, end of the movie, we have everything is pretty back to normal. I do love the whole idea that he sends Whistler into just nothingness. This whole idea that he takes his consciousness and sends it back up the line to a dead body. So he's just gone. And we've got uh, Weisler, the detective, kind of coming back. And I mean, the movie ends really really quickly i have to say like i thought there's going to be at least some sort of wrap up like we'd see jack and and uh helen hunt's character the next day lena but no it just ends right there the lead up to the conclusion is really quick it's it's almost like they just ran out of money or something but they're in the apartment building that they're hiding out in uh jack death and the lena character jack death calls whistler and says hey meet us at this place and in the very next shot is Helen Hunt in a close-up. We don't know where she is. And then Whistler just sneaking up behind her. 
And they're like, oh, I guess we're in the final scene. It's very, yeah. very, very quick. Almost abrupt. Luckily, there's enough motion going on that I was able to kind of go with it. It wasn't like too much of a left-hand turn for me to continue the driving metaphor. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, it's all very straightforward. It's just, yeah, not no filler whatsoever. This movie is just pure one scene to another. Let's hurry up and get this thing done. And I don't know if that's what also helps add to the charm of this, because you don't really ever get to a point where you're just like, man, I wish something would happen in this movie. Yeah, no, the only scene that's like that is when they're looking for Hap Ashby in the, uh, the warehouse. That whole chunk of the movie, it's very because the movie's been very colorful, lots of neon lights and, and you know clever dialogue. And then that whole scene is just really drab and kind of ugly looking, and they're just wandering around this warehouse. That's that's the only section. Well, we'll have to do a fan edit now and just cut that right out. Just cut to them finding Hap Ashby immediately. Maybe just cut to black and then come back yeah. at some point? Okay. <laughs> I just never thought that mopeds were that badass until I saw this movie, so it totally realigned my perception. They are very badass. Yeah, there's a moment in that chase when Jack Death is on the uh, the moped where I think it's supposed to be cooler than it actually is, where he, he's being chased by Whistler and his, and his men, and he goes down these concrete steps. It's more awkward than cool, but Helen Hunt's driving hers through someone's front window and then driving out his front door kind of makes up for it. And she's so cute, she gets away with that. Yeah, exactly. All right, we are going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first with the co-screenwriter, Danny Bilson, and the second with producer-director, Charles Band. I do have to say, when it comes to uh, the Bilson one, this interview was a lot longer, and then my uh, recorder screwed up. So we're hoping to have Mr. Bilson back one of these days. Uh, We talked to him a little bit about the Rocketeer and the Flash and all this stuff. So hopefully we'll be doing a Rocketeer episode uh, maybe by the end of the year or early 2016 and get him back for this because that would be pretty cool. So let's go ahead and play those after these important messages. We interrupt our program with a special bulletin. Okay, here we go. This is it. Greetings and salutations. Listen! Listen! I'm Josh Gravel. And I'm Scott Lafave. Oh, good for you! We want to let you know about the Arkham Film Society. We're a small group of cinephiles programming classic, horror, cult, and exploitation film events in the Providence, Rhode Island area. We have such sights to show you. We try to meet a need for unconventional programming by providing affordable film events through our monthly screening series. Be one of us. Find us on Facebook and join our group by searching for the Arkham Film Society at facebook.com slash Arkham Screening. Check out our blog at arkhamfilmsociety.blogspot.com. And stop by our Etsy and buy stuff at etsy.com slash people slash Yes, sir. you, sir. All right already. I'm hip. We now return control of your television set to you. You can make this Valentine's Day one that you'll both never forget with this amazing offer from adamandeve.com. Through Valentine's Day, you'll receive 50% off just about any item. Just go to adamandeve.com and you'll find over 18,000 adult entertainment products, including toys, lingerie, and a seemingly endless selection of adult DVDs. And there's more. With every order, you'll receive our romance kit free. Our romance kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something we know you'll both enjoy, plus a free adult DVD to put you in the mood. And that's not all. Oh no, 
we'll also throw in a free shipping on your entire order. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special Valentine's offer. Get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH, B-O-O-T-H, that's BOOTH, at adamandeve.com. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. How did you get started in the business? Um, I'm trying to figure out exactly how it happened. Um, <laughs> was it an accident? Uh, no. No, I was a theater major in college, and Paul DeMeo and I, who wrote Trancers with me, and it was still my writing partner to this day, um, we wrote a play in college about Houdini and Sherlock Holmes. And then we moved to L.A. Uh, to try to uh, make something happen with our careers. We worked as film extras for a long time. And then we met a guy when we were working extra who was a manager cause at a lunch table. And he signed us and started sort of moving our scripts around. But really, I was working. I became a camera assistant. And I was working as a camera assistant on Ghoulies on Charlie Band's movie. While I was working on it, I remember saying to Debbie Dion, who was his uh, girlfriend and future wife at the time, that uh, I thought, well, we can write better than this. And we had written a bunch of stuff, or better than sort of the stuff in general that they were making. And, and so I gave her some scripts, and we had also written through a bizarre connection a script for Richard Pryor in 1983, which was more of a war adventure movie that he wanted to make that never got made. And she read that and said, okay, uh, write. We need you guys to write Eliminators. And after we wrote Eliminators, then um, they said, well, we want you to write a whole bunch of movies for us. And I said, well, you got to let me direct one. And I think we wrote seven movies total for uh, Charlie Band back then. And one of them I directed, which was Zone Troopers, which, of course, had the same cast as Trancers. Trancers was the second movie we wrote for uh, Band. But it really became because I was working as a camera assistant on the set and kind of uh, bugged her, bugged Debbie, who was in charge of uh, hiring writers at the time. Was that pretty typical for what was going on at uh, Full Moon and uh, working with Charlie Band? Yeah, it was called Empire back then. This was actually before Full Moon. No, what nothing was typical. I don't know. He, I don't know where he got. They got writers from. I actually don't know. All I know is that we wound up in a little office. Uh, on Fairfax here in L.A. at Empire for a few years, grinding out scripts. And, and at one point, we went to Italy to make uh, Zone Troopers. So how did Transfers kind of come to you? It was a, um, we wrote Eliminators first. And then they wanted a rewrite 
And they so they had a script by uh, a guy named Alan Adler. And I think the only thing we kept from the script was the idea of a guy coming back from the future through an ancestor. The rest of it was completely different. Everything else was uh, was ours, was original. And uh, we just kind of went with it. We had we met. We hadn't met Thomerson yet. I don't think. But we just kind of uh, uh, went with it. And, you know, we loved old movies and we loved old detective stuff. And so we thought we would give it a bit of a sense of humor and a little bit of an old film noir touch to the science fiction. Because, you know, we, we really believe, you know, write what you like. And so that was the kind of stuff we liked. We just went for it. And they liked it. And uh, it went from there. He's from the future, but it feels like he's from the past, which is a nice twist on it. The gag was he loved uh, the past. And so did the authors. And so did the actor. So that's one thing that's very specific to both Trancers and Zone Troopers. The actors were as big of fans as old movies as Paul and I were. And was sort of, we all got kind of got together and, and did those things. And that's where a lot of that interpretation came from. And of course, Charlie directed uh, uh, Trancers, first one. When you were done with the, the script of Trancers, was this the kind of atmosphere where you're on set while the movie's being made? Or how did that kind yeah, of work? Yeah, we were, we were on set a little. I remember being on set. For visits, not for really um, rewrites or anything. It was more we would go down and hang out after we were because we were by that point we were already had a little office in uh, at Empire, and so we were working on um, Zone Troopers, I think, at that time, and maybe another one that didn't get made. But yeah, we, we would go down to the set. What was cool was it was shot during the 1984 Olympics in LA, and there was this whole panic about traffic, and everybody left town. So everything was really easy. So getting the location was really fast, and a lot of it was in downtown L.A. And I, I absolutely remember that it was super easy to get around and super easy to shoot because everybody ran away because it was uh, the Olympics. Thomerson is just amazing. Did you work with him much um, before you did Zone Troopers and Trancers? No. I think I met him on uh, Trancers. Well, I'm really... I thought we wrote that part in Eliminators for him, and then and they cast in Prime. So... Maybe I remember we wrote Eliminators first, though. So we must have met Tim in the office there or something because he had done Metal Storm with Charlie and Charlie wanted him to be in Trancers. So we probably we became really good friends right away. And Tim has been in everything that Paul and I have done almost uh, for 30 years, including last year. We did a performance capture for a video game that hasn't come out yet. And Tim uh, plays the sort of the commander of the of the unit. Or it was kind of like a CIA guy. But, uh, yeah, we worked with him last year again. So over the 30 years, uh, we worked with him, and uh, uh, we loved him. He's, he's, he's great. And, of course, he did a million movies for, uh, for Charlie back then. It's really weird. I managed to get a copy of the transfer script, but your guys' name isn't on it. It's one of Charles Band's um, pseudonyms is the, listed as the author on it. So it's just like, what is this? Oh, that's really weird because the scripts, you know, that I have all have our names on it. And it was we were in the Writers Guild at the time, so he couldn't really monkey around with that. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody just made up a different yeah. cover page for it or something. But yeah. it's uh, it's old dot matrix uh, printout, which is hilarious well, to even see in this day and age. Absolutely. And I, we had just cleaned out the storage space uh, last year and another guy, a guy named Daniel Griffith is making a documentary and, and we had thrown it all away. And the next day he came looking for stuff. So he and I were actually digging through my recycling and I pulled out a bunch of old scripts. They were all done with those dot matrix printers from the uh, early eighties. Absolutely. Did you notice that uh, Frank Darabont was an art director on uh, transfers? 
No, I didn't notice that. Yeah, Frank Frank was in the art department on Trancers. I think that's a lot of people don't know that. It's in the credits, but nobody ever talks about it. I think it's kind of cool because he became such a major filmmaker. Still is. What do you think it is about Trancers that has stuck around for so long? I mean, six sequels now, and you know, plus the the one point five sequel to it and everything. I mean, right. wh- what what do you see as the appeal of Trancers all these years later? Well, I think it's the humor. I really do. I think that that the with its sense of humor and not taking itself too seriously, it allows for some of the budget constraints and, and, and the whimsy. And Tim is really good. And in the early ones, Tim and Helen were really good. And, and Biff and the cast, you know, and art, all those guys were in zone troopers too, but they were, they were really funny and they really got it. But I really think that humor makes things last, you know, it, it gives it a charm and a, and it's, it's fun to watch. And I, and I, I honestly haven't seen, any of the transfers besides the first one and 1.5, which we wrote, I haven't seen any of the other ones. I might have seen a few minutes of one once along the way, but I really I actually never have. But as far as the ones I know of, which are the first, the one and the one and a quarter, um, I think it's the human. How did that one and a quarter one come, in of, come about? Well, right uh, somewhere after that, Charlie wanted to do this trilogy thing, Pulse Founders, with you know a, a half hour segment of a half hour sequel to three different movies of his. So Trancers was our uh, our franchise, our franchise was our story. So he asked us to write it, and uh, we did. We wrote a half hour episode that he went to Italy and shot. Um, we had, we weren't anywhere near that when it was filmed. Didn't fly you guys over? No, we were in Italy for Zone Troopers. We were the first band movie to go there. Uh, we were just sort of like six or eight of us on our own. After that, he started making a lot of things in Italy, and and one of those things he did was uh, the Pulse Pounders. did you get started in the business? I really grew up on a movie set. So, you know, my dad made films and, and my earliest memories uh, were being on the set of his, his movies that he produced and directed back way back in the 50s. And it was, um, it was a lot of magic there. It was very impressive. And it was a, you know, it was a different era, whereas today you can go with a couple guys with a digital camera and actually make something that looks pretty credible. Back in those days, it was 35 millimeter. The lights were huge. It was a lot of heavy lifting. So, you know, being on a set, especially as a small kid where everything looks bigger anyway, it was like the, the circus came to town. It was a big, big deal behind the scenes to light and, you know, make something look good. And then, uh, so the whole process was really uh, fascinating. So I, you know, he had me apprentice. I did all sorts of things on set, which I, and in post-production, which I enjoyed. And then eventually, you know, as I got a little older and had a steady diet of, you know, Marvel comics and, you know, great music from the 60s, because we were living in Italy, so I didn't get any television or anything that most kids grew up with at that time. The horror sci-fi genre appealed to me, and that's kind of a combination of my, uh, you know, the love of the craft of making movies, my my, uh, experience and, you know, sort of growing up on a set and being, you know, and and apprenticing in every department. And the sort of the, 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 you know, just being into that that genre is uh, what, I guess, equaled some weird guy who made lots of movies for the last 30-odd years. 
what would be the first movie that you really kind of consider your own? Like, what was the first Charles Band film? Truthfully, since I can go back three plus decades, probably Trancers, and that's like many, many years after I started making movies. But earlier than that, um, you know, I, I enjoyed making Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin. It was a 3D movie that was ambitious that Universal wound up picking up and distributing. That was... Um, that was fun. Uh, again, I, I didn't have the sort of control and the elements that I would have liked to have had or I later knew you needed to make really a good movie. And I think it all came together with Transfers, even though by then I directed maybe eight or ten other films. How did Transfers kind of come about? Well, I mean, by then, you know, I had Empire Studios. We were making, you know, a whole slew of wonderful movies, had a great relationship with... Um, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, who had previously written other material, and, uh, you know, they went on to do Zone Troopers, which was the first movie, um, you know, we shot in Italy before I bought the Dino De Laurentiis Studios. So, you know, I had a relationship with Danny and Paul, and um, the idea of a, uh, of, a, of a cop who can time travel, but not in the traditional way, so I think it's clever how, you know, Tim Thomerson, uh, a.k.a. Jack Death, is able to go back and his consciousness inhabits the body of, a, of an ancestor. So I thought that was kind of a clever way to time travel as opposed to getting into a, you know, some lit sci-fi booth. So, uh, you know, the, the premise was cool. And, and, um, and then Danny and Paul wrote a great script. We were blessed to find Thomerson. He was just awesome. Not to mention Helen Hunt, who was quite unknown at the time. So, uh, yeah, you know, when things really come together, you know, all those elements, it's it's always a joy, and, and, and those movies seem to stand the test of time. You seem to have worked with Thomerson quite a bit over the years. How did you two meet? We met on Metal Storm. That was many years before Trancers. Um, he came in and read. He was terrific. I'd already seen him doing stand-up. He was a stand-up comedian and, and a very well-respected one, but a lot of those guys wanted to break into acting, so I had seen him a number of times here in L.A. at the Comedy Store way before I met him and hired him as an actor. So I was really familiar with his, um, you know, his, his you know, clever, funny, humorous side. And, and then, you know, he's a good-looking guy. And, I mean, he's just the, the right mix. You know, he's one of those... I mean, he made big movies aside from my films. He made, you know, made a number of... Uh, you know, mainstream Hollywood films, always sort of as a second banana sidekick. And you know, he's one of those guys that had he had the right, right break back when he was in his 30s back in those days, I think he could have been a huge star because he has the looks and the charisma and he's got that humor. What's he like to work with on set? He's the most fun dude ever. I mean, he's cracking jokes. All we did was laugh. I mean, it's, you know, I it was a blessing to work with him those, you know, four or five times we worked together. So he's... Uh, you know, you go. You know, I I did all that behind the scene footage. I was the first guy doing that back eight million years ago. So all the material was, you know, just anything on set. You know, and when Thomas and I, Thomas and Thomerson and I, and uh, Megan Ward, who was great, and Helen Hunt, there's just a lot of fun material with with him cutting up on set and just. He's just a funny guy, so he was a joy to work with. I have to say, I really love Thelma Hopkins in that movie. Oh, she's great. Well, the whole cast, Art LaFleur, I forget her name, the girl played, the, the, the actor, actress who played the little girl. I mean, it was a wonderful cast, and everyone had the, sort of the ring of truth that all played. Why do you think that Transfers has kind of st- stood the test of time? I think it's just, you know, it's fresh, it's different, it's well-made, it's, you know, uh, you know we've, we've seen $200 million movies lay an egg, and we've seen little movies made for almost nothing, you know, have a... 
you know, have some resonance and have some charm. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, money does help a lot and there are movies you can't make without a certain amount of dollars. But, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, when something works, it works. And, and, uh, you know, uh, it obviously starts with a great script and, and, you know, whether you're a, you know, multi-million dollar writer or a writer writing something for 500 bucks, you're still on a computer program with the same amount of, uh, you know, of white pages, at the end of the day, it's you know it's about talent. So I think you can do a lot when you're lucky enough to have, you know, a lot of good talent comes together. I mean, no one sets out to make a bad movie, but you're lucky when you've got you know all the elements lined up. How did Transfers 1.5 come about? <laughs> um, uh, well, um, towards the end of the uh, Empire era, where we were making movies in Italy, I made a lot of films there. Um, the one film that I wanted to make personally, because I was conceiving the movies and shepherding the movies through our studio, but I wanted to at least go and make one film where I would actually direct. So I decided to make sort of three mini sequels to three movies that were doing well at the time. So one was a sequel to Dungeon Master with Richard Mall. One was a sequel of sorts or in the vein of uh, Lovecraft uh, with Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton, because we just had made The Reanimator. And one was to be a sequel um, to Transfers, and and I shot all three of those episodes. So the the the, the binding overall title was to be called uh, Pulse Founders, and each of the episodes had their own um, you know their own chapter titles. And uh, as we closed up shop at Empire and moved back to the States, and everything flip flopped as it does in this business, the negative was lost through an Italian lab and uh, you know, for decades had no idea where it was. It was just a total bummer. We were never able to finish the movie. And then a few years ago, someone found in one of our millions of boxes of VHS and three-quarter inch tape and masters and found a VHS copy of the rough cut of all three episodes. So, uh, I mean, it looked like crap because it's, you know, VHS and it comes from a, a work print with splices and, you know, all the dirt that goes along with that. So what I decided to do, just for the fun of it, we, we you know we went and I wanted to release one chapter at a time. So I went to um, some friends who are really amazing digital guys and said, look, can you clean this up and cover up the dirt and replace frames? And I mean, knowing it would never look great because it still comes from a VHS source, but at least we can make it clean. So we did that first with uh, Evil Clergyman, with Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton, and we released that. Um, as its own little release. And then we did um, the transfers uh, episode, The Return of Jack Dev, with, uh, you know, with the whole cast, and Art LaFleur, Talma, Tim Thomerson, Helen Hunt. And the third one that we have not finished yet, and we will one day, is the Dungeon Master sequel. So one day, one day, one day, when that's done, we'll combine them all in the original sort of idea of having a, a trilogy, uh, you know, uh, uh, anthology movie called uh, Pulse Pounders. Was... Transfers 2, was that your first sequel, or had you, you had done Puppet Master 2 before that, right? Hey, Transfers 2, yes. Yeah, let me think about that. It was all in the same year. So the feature-length Transfers 2, not the 1.1, was one of the first sequels made at Full Moon. Uh, we may have made Puppet Master 2 by then, but somewhere in there were... were we, we did two of the twos, 1991, 1992. I know it was a totally different market when it comes to stuff back then. How did sequels fare when it came to you know your own full moon properties? That was great. I mean, you know, 
the 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 dream was always to release a film and and hope that it did well enough that we would you know have the resources and go out and make a sequel and the fans loved it because you know you get used to the characters it's you know it's when it makes sense it makes sense and you know, there are a lot of movies I've made over especially back in the 80s and early 90s that did well enough but not quite well enough for a sequel that you know for now 20 odd years people say yeah you should make a sequel to this you should make a sequel to that because there are good films we've made that never went to sequel but the ones that were the the, the hits that actually went out and shipped a lot of units and got a lot of great feedback you know, those were automatic sequels. So if the buyers wanted them, the foreign buyers who we were involved with at the time, and you know, if the feedback was good, and again, this was sort of before the internet, so you know, we got lots and lots of letters, and the and the um, the retailers would let us know as well because I toured the country and I did these road shows and I got a lot of feedback from retailers and no one else was doing that. So if it made sense, well, we knew Puppet Master would make sense. That was a no-brainer. That did so well and it caught such a chord that we we knew we had to make a sequel. So yeah, we've. I don't know how many movies we made sequels to in the early 90s, putting aside, you know, a decade earlier, but, you know, Subspecies and Trancers, for sure, and Puppet Master and Demonic Toys, you know, there are a handful that went to, you know, sequels. Tell me about the whole idea. I've heard stories about you having posters designed and then being able to sell titles from <laughs> the posters. Yeah, and, you know, I don't want to say that I'm the first guy to ever do this. I mean, Roger Corman did, did that in a similar way, although the, the world was different in the theatrical world, that he was, when he was really strong, you know, there was still a, you know, a B-movie business and getting movies out to drive-ins and theaters. And, you know, when I came on board, that was almost gone. So I'm, I was more, you know, at the, at the beginning of the, the, the video era. But, yeah, we went to film festivals and shows, and, and it was a bit of a testing the waters exercise, but you... You know, you show up with a few movies and five or ten great posters of films that you want to make, and if you can make the sales and people are excited enough to support whatever it is, then it's uh, you know it's better that way than you know making something and then having it having trouble selling it or having trouble you know coming up with the title. That happens a lot. A lot of people make movies and they're not sure of the title, and and then it's done, and then they got to test you know screen it, and then they're wondering how to how to market it and, you know, what title to put on it. And that rarely happened to us. We always reversed engineered. You know, if we had a great piece of art and a great title, then we went and made the movie. I mean, I can give you a hundred examples, but the one that comes to mind quickest is, you know, I have this great, have this great relationship with Stuart Gordon. We did Reanimator. We did From Beyond. We did Dolls. We did Robot Jocks. And sometime in the early 90s, I said, Stuart, let's, let's do a movie in Italy. And, I said, I've got a great idea. I got a great idea. I got a great title and a great piece of art, and let's see if we can make a movie. And I showed him the a rough piece of art and the title Castle Freak. And I said, We got to make a movie called Castle Freak. It just is too perfect. And then you know we we made it. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of how a lot of it worked. How is it done now? How are you? Um, what's I know the market again is completely different. So how are you managing to kind of get your stuff out there now? The, really cool thing that we've done that maybe a year, year and a half ago that we're building is we created our own streaming site. And, you know, because video, as much as we love, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays, and but because the rental market is gone in this country, you know, Blockbuster, Hollywood, they're all gone. You know, that was really what fueled our business for so many years. And um, really since the beginning, since the early 80s. So when you take away that revenue stream, which was 70, 80% of, you know, the pie, you're left with, you know, some new digital things which don't amount to much. You're not left with much. And, you know, not everyone 
wants to buy a DVD or a Blu-ray for $10, $15, $20. The rental business is great because for a few bucks you can go and rent it for a night. So as that died and, and Netflix sort of you know, exploded, it just made sense to me about a year and a half ago that that was the new model that you know Netflix had found a way to aggregate movies and and really offer an amazing deal to um, to to people who like watching movies to some degree to the detriment of a lot of young filmmakers who you know can't get the money anymore out of you know their movie that they were able to when when video rental was alive and well but a great deal for the customer I mean when you can think for, when you think that for eight bucks or whatever it is today, nine bucks, you can have access to tens of thousands of movies a month. I mean, that's like, you know, you know having a free ticket to a video store. I mean, you know, I don't know how many movies, I forget what the math is, but back in the day, the heyday of, let's say, Blockbuster and Hollywood Video, I think eight or nine bucks would maybe rent you three movies. And to think now, you know, with uh, with the Netflix, you can literally watch, I mean, wall-to-wall movies for 30 days for the same you know, dollars. So good for the consumer, really bad for the filmmakers, especially the filmmakers who rely on the rental revenue. So, you know, it, it, it was very obvious to me that, you know, you, know, you, you got to, you know, we had to do something along those lines. So I started full moon streaming and it's been great. I mean, it's a slow process. It's not like an overnight thing that, uh, you know, explodes, but, uh, you know, we have the full moon films going up. We have new movies being re- new full moon movies being released. I licensed a whole ton of Blue Underground films, which are great, and something weird. And we have our Wizard label, and there's new new uh, acquisitions coming that are going to be announced in the next few weeks. So, you know, depending on the week, three, four, five new movies go up every single week on streaming, and for like six bucks a month. You know, so you know the price is ridiculously low. And uh, what's nice is most people who sign up stick around. Um, you know, we went up recently on Roku, so you can watch it on Roku. Of course, everyone's getting smart TV, so all you have to do is just go to fullmoonstreaming.com. And in the last month, we thought, you know, we're so proud of this, and it works so well. Let's let everyone sign up for free for a week or two, which is what you can do. So you can go there and test the waters and sign up, and if you like it, six, seven bucks a month. So um, all of our new Full Moon movies, we're making a new Puppet Master this year, uh, making Killjoy, a new Killjoy. We're making a whole slew of films. Uh, uh, last year, we had a, a number of films premiere on the site. And the one I'm most proud of is called Trophy Heads. So it actually premiered as a five-part uh, series weekly. Um, and, and now we've, we've cut it down into a feature-length film, which comes up, which actually goes out next week on, on streaming. So Full Moon Streaming is sort of our main deal. But, you know, then we're, we're on Hulu as much as we can be on Hulu and Amazon Prime and you know, or some of the new movies will hit, you know, in demand and Time Warner. And, you know, we're on all those services. But what is more near and dear is, is our own streaming site. And that's, uh, and if the fans support it and, and it's helped spread the word, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be somewhat immune to, you know, these crazy market conditions, which seem to change every 60 to 90 days. You know, once you're on streaming, you know, you can look at the films, you can look at them on mobile devices, on your computer, on your smart TV, if you have Roku. We've been trying to get on Xbox and PlayStation. It's a little tricky to get in there, but we're hopefully close to doing that. So, um, yeah, it's uh, who would have thought 25, 30 years ago that, you know, any of this would even be happening, you know, that, that people could rip a movie off on the Internet. wouldn't have made sense back in the early 80s. But that's the world we live in. 
Oh, yeah. It seems very sci-fi. You know, the whole idea of, well, I want to watch this movie. Oh, there it is. Let me check it out. You know, yeah. having all this stuff at your fingertips is yeah. just amazing. It is sci-fi because, you know, if for people who are younger, it's not so sci-fi. For people who are a little older, who like me, you know, I mean, when I was really young, you know, the, the, the notion of being able to watch a movie at, at will or at call or at whim, I mean, I was crazy. You know, if you were into these movies... You know, once in a while they would play late night TV. I'll cut up, or or maybe some of the more important sci-fi, fantasy, horror films would be, you know, at your local revival house, and you'd watch it on 16 millimeter. But you know, it, you'd be hard pressed to to see any of these films or any of the classic, you know, horror films. So uh, or, or or any film, any film for that matter. And then suddenly, with the uh, the age of uh, video and the fact that you could, you know, albeit walk down to your local video store, drive to your store, and rent some movies, that was a mind blower for a lot of people. The fact that you could say, "Hey, look, come over tonight. We're going to watch uh, whatever it was, uh, Gone with the Wind," and then, and then you rented a movie. People watched it in their home, and now that seems uh, like you know, <laughs> like so long ago. Now it's just you know all you have to do is have a thumb that works, I guess, and. Uh, you're scrolling around alphabetically and finding what you like and you know renting it or buying it. It's pretty crazy. When it came to the direction of transfers, how was the decision made to, to take it kind of back in time? How was the decision made to take Jack out of 1980s Los Angeles and put him more in the e- medieval times? Oh, you mean for the for the the, the latter transfers, transfers four and five? You know, I let's see. The super honest answer is I'm not sure because at that point we were making 15 to 20 movies a year. I was very involved. Obviously, I directed Transfers 1 and 2, and I was pretty close to 3. Once we got to 4 and 5, we were shooting uh, most of our films in Romania. I had a studio there. We wanted to take advantage of the, of the terrain, of the fact that there were real castles there. And I forget exactly how and why we um, we got together and thought, okay, let's find it. You know, different sort of adventure for Jack. Let's let's put him in a in a in a place where we can you know uh, use the production values that exist. You know, as opposed to trying to you know make uh, downtown Bucharest look like uh, L.A. So so you know we kind of probably we probably reverse engineered the ideas to make Romania work best, and that's all I remember. Like I said, I didn't direct them. I was just thinking, all right, that's kind of fun. Let's let's get Jack over there. But that's the extent of my memory. back. Thanks to Mr. Bilson and Mr. Band for taking the time to talk to us. You can hear more from Mr. Band on our upcoming episode on The Tourist Trap. We're talking this week about transfers. Mike, you mentioned that this film spawned many sequels, um, and uh, sadly, I did not take the time to watch those, but I know that you did, and I uh, was going to ask, how sort of uh, do you rate the overall franchise, considering there is, what, uh, six and a half other movies? Well, actually, I want to turn this one over to Jay, since you saw the sequels first. I'm curious what you thought of those, and then kind of going back into Transfers, the first one. Uh, well, 
think finally seeing the first one retroactively made me like the sequels a little bit more just because it's like, oh, now I understand why this was interesting to people to begin with. But not having seen it and seeing the first sequel when I was, I think I was 11 or 12 when it came out, I, I wondered why it looked like it was a TV movie. Like that whole movie is is so boring looking and it's got a lot of great actors in it. Like uh, Richard Lynch shows up and Jeffrey Combs, uh, Barbara Crampton's in it for a scene. So it kind of gets by on just the charm of the cast, but it's overall a pretty boring movie. It's just sort of like, hey, we got everybody back together, which having not seen the first one, that didn't mean anything to me. I watched two through four-ish, five-ish, <laughs> six-ish. Is that when you started to give up? Oh, God, that was a painful day yeah. um, because I tried to watch them all in one sitting. And two, I was there for three. I was still pretty checked in. And then once I hit four, five, and six, it was just like, you have to be kidding me. Watching two again just this morning, it is, yeah, it's so, I think flat is the right word. I mean, it is just like all of these, the the direction, I mean, band did the direction for one and two. And I have to say one is fairly dynamic. You know, things are looking good. We've got these nice sets and all this kind of stuff. And then in two, it's almost like nobody could show up on the same day is what it (laughs) felt like, because we have all these like shots of Thomerson and then a shot of Helen Hunt and then a shot of Thomerson again. And it's like, I, there's no single shot. And I did, you know, I went back and rewatched this today. Richard Lynch, who is our main bad guy and Tim Thomerson are never in the same shot at the same time. Like they don't even, their characters aren't even in the same scene until an hour and 15 minutes into the movie. And then again, it's like you get Thomerson throwing this pitchfork and then cut to the pitchfork hitting Richard Lynch. And I'm just like, how, you know, this is worse than, uh, you know, Star Trek two. It's like, how far apart were these guys when they shot this? Did they bring in Lynch like a couple months later or what was going on? It was just bizarre. And again, like weird fades to black that are happening in this movie. It's just like, that's that when you cut to the commercials yeah really that's, that's what it felt like yeah. oh my god yeah, that tends to be yeah. i've noticed that's charles band's directing style is all the close-ups of people are they're almost looking right at the lens they're just yeah. off from the lens and then you cut to reverse and it's the same thing someone just looking you know to one side of the camera it's 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 very bizarre and i would say the first transfers is probably his best movie as a director goes he's obviously been a really prolific producer but uh, a lot of the movies he directs have the the look and feel and pacing of Transers too. The thing that got me too was the whole idea of in the first movie they've got the whole long second thing, and with that they actually slow down the film. You know they're they're shooting this at a higher frame rate so it plays slower, and in the second one people are just acting slow. <laughs> Oh God, really? <laughs> Which is just the most like the, there's the scene where the woman Alice Stillwell. So we have the return of Jack's wife, who now is in this other woman's body, uh, Megan Ward, and she is like trying to escape this insane asylum, and she does the long second gag, and you can just see the actors like slow down. I'm like, oh man, this is bad. Jeez, oh, I didn't even notice that. But I thought they did that in the first one because the scene where Helen Hunt gets pushed off the um, the roof, I thought that Tim Thomerson was like walking in slow mo, like like it wasn't slowed down. It was him like pretending to move a little slower. 
well, maybe he's a better actor than these like extras who are guards at the insane asylum. But because these guys were bad, and also it all, I think there's another. Oh, it's uh, when Thomerson's getting attacked by these construction workers. So again, he's he's acting slow in that, and he can do a good job of acting slow. But these guys, these extras who are the construction workers, not necessarily good slow motion actors. It totally reminds me of the uh, the line that Sam Raimi once laid on Bruce Campbell where he's like that is the worst reverse acting I've ever seen (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it just doesn't necessarily work very well and I mean it's it's an okay movie and it kind of explains transferring a little differently that now it's going to be this kind of more of a uh, like a biological thing where there's these plants that are doing this and blah, yada, yada, yada. But yeah, what the, I don't what know. the transfers are seems to change with every movie. But uh, yeah. the thing I like in the second movie is the, you know, his wife from the future travels back to the present. And so now he's got these two wives and I, I liked that aspect of it. That was good. And I liked that the girl that McNulty's in is older. And I thought that that actress was really good. Like I said earlier, the guy that played Hap Ashby, he's in this movie a lot more. And this is like, oh, yeah, this doesn't really work too well. Especially, and I don't know if he was doing the same thing that he was doing in the first movie. I thought he was acting drunk in this movie. <laughs> uh, though maybe he was. But if he was acting drunk... Not really a very convincing job of acting drunk for me. Mm, he got a, in real life. He got himself cleaned up by the time they did the second one. So, <laughs> and apparently, it's not a real big deal that he falls off the wagon in this movie. Like they try to stop him a couple times, but then by the end of the movie, they're just like, "Oh, whatever." Hap's drinking. <laughs> <laughs> the third one again. I mean, so yeah, Richard Lynch, great, fantastic bad guy. I have to say, Jeffrey Combs very restrained. In the second film, I almost didn't recognize that it was Jeffrey Combs just because he plays it down so much. And I'm used to that unhinged Jeffrey Combs. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I don't even remember what he does in the second one. He just sort of says lines. There's no real character to him. But Richard Lynch is, you know, he's Richard Lynch and everything, and that's okay when it comes to him. Great villain. Again, I really would have liked to have seen him interacting with Jack Death a little bit. No, we never get that in these movies. And then in the third movie, we get Andrew Robinson, who a lot of people know as the Scorpio killer from the Dirty Harry films. He worked a lot with Don Siegel. He was in Charlie Varick. Really good actor. And he plays a character who's like daddy mother oh which is this weird kind of thing and again um now this time though we're going from 1992 which is when the sequel was made and then they take jack and they bring him up the line to 23 something or other and again very very terminator-esque it's like the you know judgment day has happened the transfers have fought this huge war and now we just have a few remaining stragglers of the council and we have Jack's wife and the technician are up in the future. And it's like, you know, Oh, we got to send you back with this, um, this weird, like cyborg shark that they created. Shark. (laughs) 
He's the best aspect of that movie. And they send him back to 2005 now. And we have uh, Jack's marriage to Lena is on the rocks, pretty much because we know that uh, Helen Hunt's career is taking off at this time. (laughs) So she's like, yeah, I'm not going to do another Transfers movie. So she's only in it for just a little bit. Very, very Terminator-esque. And uh, it's this whole thing of um, daddy-mother trying to turn these soldiers into trancers and i gotta say when i watched the third one again today i i was fast forwarding because i was just like ah this thing just never ends (laughs) yeah that's where you're confused as to what the trancers are again because now it's like this guy's training these people to be trancers but i thought the whole idea is that it has to be weak-minded people that aren't in control of their own bodies when they become trancers but now it's like I, i don't even know what they are anymore and now they can just travel time. I and mean, we did have that introduced in the second film that now you can physically go up the line and down the line. You don't have to actually, no, you can go forward in time with a machine, but you can only go back through the biological way. But now by three, we have it so you can go back and forth because shark is going back and forth in time. Well, he is a robot, so he is a robot <laughs> and maybe he's covered by organic material. You go naked. Something about the field generated by a living organism. Nothing dead will go. But this cyborg, if it's metal... Surrounded by living tissue. Oh, right, right. I don't know. I don't know what the rules are here with the whole, like, you know, because he kind of reminds me of, like, a, a Terminator character. And I like that we think he's bad at first, but he's actually this nice guy and or nice robot, blah, blah, blah. And then four comes around... Sorry, I'm really skipping through these pretty quickly because four is just where everything for me just <laughs> falls apart. Four is, you know, going back to Evil Dead, four is the medieval dead. Four is Army of Darkness. It is Jack Death in a castle. And it's castle intrigue with trancers. And I I accidentally turned on five first. And was watching this, and I'm just like, what the hell? I missed all this stuff. I don't understand anything that's going on. And when they were going through and basically saying, like, last time on Trancers, and ran through everything that happened in 4, I was like, I don't want to watch this movie. This looks terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 4 and 5, well, they were shot back-to-back, which is what Full Moon started to do towards the end of that era. Uh, Just to save money, they would shoot two sequels at once. And I think it was just, hey, Charlie Band. It has a castle in Romania, so what can we shoot there? I'll just shoot a transfer sequel there. It doesn't make any sense, but we'll just do it. And it could have been okay, you know? Like I said, Medieval Dead, it worked with Ash being out of time and coming back to all the primitive screwheads and this kind of stuff, but it just does not work in this film. It is just terrible. It was, oh man, it Tim Thomerson, he can't even save this movie, and especially because we don't have the strong cast that we had in the previous ones it's just like who are these people they felt like they couldn't get onto xena and now they're on this and it was oh it was bad it was so bad yeah nothing that makes even the second and third one they still have some elements that are what are interesting about the transfer series but yeah four and five don't have any of that all right you primitive screwheads listen up this is my boomstick And then six. Did you watch six? I watched part of six years ago. um, And I remember being surprised that it was shot on film because that was the point where Full Moon was shooting everything on video. But it was on film. So I don't know if that was their attempt to like, hey, we're still relevant. I don't know. But 
uh, no Jack da- or no uh, Tim Thomerson, so who cares? You you totally remind me of like uh, talking about like that porn movie Pirates. Hey, it's shot on thirty five millimeter. Porn's getting back into <laughs> film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, film couldn't save this movie. Um, <laughs> the scenes of Thomerson that are in here, I don't know if they were shot for the movie. They just feel like kind of throwaways from the previous films or something. And it is his daughter Josephine Death, uh, who's played by. Zet Sullivan. I don't know if I'm saying her name right. Normally I can handle bad acting, but I have to say that the acting in that film, I couldn't, I couldn't sit through it. I wonder who made it farther in. I think I might've made it 15, 20 minutes in. Uh, That's probably about how far I made it. Yeah. This was an endurance test, man. (laughs) I, I failed. (laughs) Couldn't do it. And, and it, all of the things that I liked so much. I mean, we talked about how the first movie was just filled with so many great actors and there was just, there was nobody, there's nobody that I wanted to see in this film at all. You know, I, I usually say apologies to the actors for this, but not this time. I just, I couldn't see any redeeming qualities at all. I was just like, what is going on with this? So kind of ended with a whimper rather than a bang though there was the transfers 1.5 that came out uh part of the pulse pounders so you heard uh, in the interviews i talked to um mr band a little bit about that and that was nice to see you know kind of rescued from time this uh short half hour thing and uh, i think that's on the blu-ray now isn't it it is i haven't watched it yet but I, I, I'm glad. I'm I, even if it's bad. Like I'm glad that it's available now. I'm glad that it exists. So it's not bad. It's uh, you know you, you've got Thomerson and Hunt back, and you know it was shot between one and two. It looks good. I mean, it would have looked good to me even had it been on VHS. You know, it just was. It was more about the acting and just a nice little story. I think it takes twenty minutes to get through or something. And yeah, it worked. I mean, it's not like you're missing part of the lore or anything. <laughs> so if you if you don't see it, you're okay. If you don't ever watch Transfers four, five, or six, you're okay. If you don't ever watch two or three, you're okay. But I would say check out two. I mean, it's worth the time. So let's go ahead and take another break and hear from Jack Death himself, Tim Thomerson. This was right around the time that uh, you and Charles Band finally met, right? Well, what happened was I got hired to do Metal Storm, which was a movie shot in 3D and uh, actually a pretty good little sci-fi movie. And let me just say from the, I was never, ever a fan of sci-fi, ever. I did like apocalyptic stuff and Mad Max had just come out. So it was kind of a, had that Mad Max feeling because uh, Jeffrey Byron, the, the guy who played the main guy in it, he's kind of Mad Maxed out. He had the same kit, Mel Gibson, Warren, Mad Max. But me personally, Tim Thomerson, I never, I was never a sci-fi guy. I never, the only thing I ever liked was The Thing and The Thing with uh, Michael Rennie, not Tomb Beretta, whatever that. The Day the Earth Stood Still, yeah. There's only two sci-fi movies I ever, I ever really liked, you know. But the rest of it I never cared about. But that's not even a sci-fi movie. That's an, a, more of an apocalyptic, weird. I don't know what you. Would, I don't know what you would call that movie. But anyway, Charlie and I got along and had a lot of laughs. And I liked the character I played. It was fun, and it was a fun show to be on. And and uh, remember Richard Mull? Oh yeah, yeah, Bull from Night Court. Yeah. So Richard Mull, Charlie said he wondered. He says, you know, why you why you shave your head for this? Bull's going to shave my head while you're. Uh, but by shaving his head, he went and auditioned for Night Court, and that got him the role on that thing, which had a 
hell of a run and made him a shitload of money. So that movie <laughs> is what got him the character on Night Corp because he walked in there with a shaved head because nobody had a shaved head back then except Telly Savalas, you know. So, you know, everybody's got a fucking shaved head and it goes to you, you know, with tattoos, you know. Uh, but anyway, so my relationship with Charlie kind of started then. He said, well, we got to work together again. You know, you, know, you, you talk to Charlie, he's a very vivacious, energetic guy and funny and weird and crazy. But yeah, yeah, we're going to work together sometimes. So anyway, then now what do you want to know? Yeah, tell me about transfers. Tell me how you got involved with that. Well, so what, what happened was is that uh, I'm still plugging along, working. I think I did take this job and shot. Or that was, you know, I don't, these, I get these years mixed up. I forget what year was shot. I mean, you, you've got to go on IMDb. I don't remember. So anyway, I'm working a lot. Let's just say I'm, you know, I'm working on all kinds of sort of different character guys. And I'm, I'm doing television. Then I did a thing for Norman Lear called All That Glitters. Paul, Paul Schaefer and I, I got a series with Paul and BJ and the Bear Guy, whoever that guy was. Who was that guy's name? Really nice kid. Uh, I did All That Glitters, which was a Norman Lear show. It was, uh, kind of Linda Gray was in that. And... Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm still doing these comedy shows and getting roles in movies, you know. So I'm I'm working, I'm a working actor. So forget exactly what year it was. It's after Metal Storm, certainly. Uh, Charlie wants to do this thing called Time Cop, or I think that was the first name of it. Time something. Now, DeMeo and Bilson were young guys who were writer guys, right? Working for Charlie. We met and we talked and Charlie said, well, I want to play this, you know, you want to be this guy from the future who comes down to L.A. And, you know, we know, we didn't know what it was going to be, you know. So he just wanted me to be this guy, this character. It turns out that Danny and Paul DeMeo and Danny Bills and Paul DeMeo and Danny Bills and, and me, you know, we were all sort of, you know, noir freaks and loved uh, the old gumshoe Bogart, and Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe. We loved that, that, that type of character, you know, out of the past, Bob Mitchum, you know, that trench coat wearing, wise ass, cigar cigarette smoking guy, you know. We, that was a great character. We, we loved that genre, so to speak. So then Charlie was the sci fi guy. He wanted something from the future to come to LA uh, in, in, in today, in other words. So Danny and Paul and I came, we all kind of at the same time agreed, why don't we make this guy a Philip Marlowe type Dashiell Hammett? hybrid of, of, uh, of this, this gumshoe guy, you know, who comes from the future down the line and, uh, and said, okay, cool. And then Charlie agreed to it and they wrote up this script and, and Jack Death was created. And then, so I, then we were looking for the girl, you know, and I had worked with Helen on the two of us and she was only like a 16 year old kid back then. And she was really a funny chick. I mean, she was really a funny kid. A very, very, very funny girl. So we got along, you know, working on that show and I remembered her I said you know what man I know there's this actress out there because she really needed an LA girl and she grew up in LA she's a real you know she grew up in the valley you know like Jodie Foster they grew up out in the San Fernando Valley and I said this really needs somebody who really knows LA and who's an LA chick you know that's what you need for this character for my character to bounce off of you know so she get to, get to bring this kid Helen Hunt in you know she was like 21 then yeah because yeah, yeah she had turned 21 and uh, so I said, well, it's, 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 it's got to be her. She's, she's, she's the girl, you know. And so she got the role, and then the rest is history. And Charlie, Charlie had time, had a great DP. Charlie had great technical guys working for him at one time. 
Don Burgess was one of his cameramen, and Mac Alberg was this great DP who had, was uh, Ingmar Bergman's first DP, and he was starting to shoot stuff in, in Sweden, and Mac had told Ingmar Bergman, I'm going to go down into Italy and Spain and start shooting commercials, and that's when Sven Nyquist took over. So there was a pedigree there along the line, and then Charlie's father, if you know who he is, Albert Ban, you know, produced a lot of, you know, you know, Charlie grew up in Rome, you know, on the sets of, you know, Giuliani, and, you know, and, and he had a connection with, with, the, with making movies in Italy, you know. He had this, this European connection. But anyway, at the time, Mac Alpert was a really good DP. Because if you look at transfers, it's really well shot for back then, you know. I mean, so we pounded out that first transfers, and, it, you know, it wasn't a, a hit or anything, but it, it became this, you know, kind of a cult thing, you know. It was always well reviewed, and and then you know, and then things were changing in the business. You know, the video world was coming in. You know, the, the video sales. You know, those the big DVDs or uh, VHS things were. So then, those enchanters too came along. And going back to the original transfers, I just want to say the chemistry that you have amongst all the cast just is pitch perfect. I mean, the scenes that you and Helen have together, the scenes with you and Art LaFleur, Thelma Hopkins, so good. Did you guys do a lot of rehearsals for this, or was the, how well, did you, you know, get that I, chemistry? I, I think that we were all pretty conscientious of that, that we want this to work. Art, who's a very good actor, and a very conscientious actor, and Thelma just had a natural talent because she was from, you know, Tony Orlando and Don, so she was always spot on. She never missed a beat. We would go and rehearse. I think it's, I remember we'd go off on our own and we'd rehearse to make sure we got the lines down right, you know. And each of us had a very specific guy to play. You know, Art's guy was that almost William Bendix type character. And, and I was that goofy guy I was playing was, you know, it's whatever that guy was, Jack Depp was, you know, that wisecracking cigarette guy. It just all seemed to work, you know. And we were having a lot of fun and, 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 you know, it's a low budget, and I don't even know what the budget was, but you know, we didn't have a lot of time to, to, to screw around. And Helen is very handy and very smart actress because she's been acting since she was a kid. So those scenes between she and I, we, we just sort of clicked. And, and we were just all kind of excited to just be working, actually. But and it was fun to do. It was, it was a fun movie. And uh, so when you're having fun, I think it, it, it comes through, yeah. Yeah, the chemistry did work at, uh, with all the actors. And then Biff Maynard, who I knew from seeing, grew up in San Diego. We knew each other, no, had known one another for years. So anything with him was, was spot on. We knew how to behave with, with each other, you know. What's interesting about doing a movie is that you never know who your fellow actor, who they studied with or what their technique's going to be. But, you, you know, when you're shooting movies, you don't have time for anything but to get the shit right. You, know, you can't go off and have what's my motivation and why is my character doing this? And I, that's how I was taught. You don't want to waste time. You better have your do your homework at home and come to work prepared on the set and hit your mark and say your words and let's get it done. You know, it just seemed to just all come together. And I think you see it in the movie. And we were having fun. And it was shot during the time of the Olympics, so there was, the streets were empty in Los Angeles. You know, it was kind of a cool time to shoot a movie because. L.A. is such a god-awful place. And, and the locations were great, and the action, and certainly Chinatown helped, had a great look to it, you know, and it was a silly thing, you know, <laughs> going down the line, but it was a pretty hip 
hip kind of movie, you know. You kind of became the go-to guy a little bit for Charles Band and these productions with like Zone Troopers and Doll Man and all these. How was right. that working, being like the face of uh, Full Moon? Well, yeah, one of them, and then certainly Jeffrey Combs too, and and uh, he's one of the great scenes of all time and a very funny man. But yeah, it, you know, and then Zone Troopers. This, I mean, that was a I mean, that was a love fest. You know, going to Rome and shooting that because you know Danny and Paul and the same thing. You know, Charlie wanted to. You know, so we just made so Charlie wanted to shoot a thing in Rome, and it was cheap to shoot there. So he had some studio for. We actually shot a Chinichinta, and that was a great experience because we were all once again World War II freaks. And my dad was a you know a career Navy man was in World War II. I was in the service, so I kind of knew how to play those guys. You know, I I knew feeling, and I just wanted to be uh, uh, do combat. That remember the show Combat with the. Uh, or you know, I don't know how old you are, but there was a TV show called Combat with Dick Morrow. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, well that was you know that and, and the character of Steve McQueen and and Hell is for Heroes. That was my template for that guy that I played, and then that was just fun doing that. You know, doing a World War II movie in Rome. Yeah, come on, I mean, it was, you know, the the only thing I always regretted in that is that there was going to be a motorcycle. I, I told Danny I got to ride a motorcycle thing. But, like a tribute to McQueen and The Great Escape, like get on a bike and I, you know, I'm being chased by these guys, you know, it never, it never worked out. So. I, because I was, I was really tuned up with the dirt bikes and I could really slide it around pretty well and I was really bummed that I didn't get to do that. Anyway, I was going to say, you could have slid it at 90, right? Like you did. Yeah, in, uh... come in and slide at 90, <laughs> man. Yeah. <laughs> and then the old man came along, which Albert Pune directed, who was another madman of film. Brilliant guy, I thought. <laughs> what was it like kind of going back and, and returning as Jack Death, um, what, four or five more times? Well, the second one I thought was silly and funny and weird and kind of truncated. The third one I thought was had a, a different feeling to it and because Jack Death and Lee had split up and it had a little more pathos, maybe, would be the word. And you had Andy Robinson and it just was a, it had a different feeling to it. You know, uh, four and five are absolutely ridiculous, I think. I mean, we go to Romania. I'm in Romania. I'm in Robin Hood land. I mean, how did that all happen? And, uh, <laughs> but the bonus about that is working with this, this brilliant David Nutter, this director, David Nutter, who's gone on to do, and he's just gone on to do some brilliant work. And he was the great thing about being with David in Romania at that time. was, And, and they were fun to do. I mean, it, it, it was just, but it was just so silly. You know, here's Jack Depp, and the guy next to me is just like, you know, Errol Flynn, you know, so it was just, I mean, they were fun. They were, they were, always, they were always fun to do, but I think we kind of lost uh, lost its way on 4 and 5, even though people still like them, I guess, you know. Uh, I had, there was one we were going to shoot that we never got to, wanted Courtney to write it up, and it was going to be Jack, this is like an apocalyptic Jack death where he was on the road, and it was going to be a road movie where he was actually on a, on a dirt bike, and I was still young enough I could handle it, and uh, but that never came to be, but we almost did it, you know, we got with Charlie, we almost pulled the trigger on it, and we had, I had, man, I had Ali McGraw lined up, and all my friends and this stuff, they were going to do cameos, and it was, it was going to be this kind of road thing we were going to shoot it. Well, we were going to try to shoot it in Mexico that time before it got too weird down there. Or, you know, down along the border somewhere, Arizona, something like that. But uh, we wanted to get Bo Hopkins, and when you get Ali, like I said, Ali McGraw would have done it. And it just would have been neat, but it never came to be, you know. 
those. And then doing the last thing with Evil Bong, I just sort of did that. You know, cause Tommy, I always liked Tommy Chong, he was a cool guy. And then Charlie, you know, Sabre, you know, to do it. When it comes to uh, Transfers 2, were you and Richard Lynch on the set at the same time? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It was great. It was great. But see, I, when I was in New York, he was one of those actors I used to see walking around. So they were shooting the 7-Ups and, you know, Godfather 3 was being shot. And so I kind of, you know, I'd see these guys, you know. And I was just, you know, young, con- you know, I was just a good guy waiting tables going to acting school and doing his comedy, you know. So, yeah, I used to see uh, Lynch and, and, and Tom Signorelli and, and like, I knew Aiello, I, I knew him, and I knew uh, uh, Carmine Caridi. I knew I knew some of these guys, you know. So, uh, but, yeah, we were on the set at the same time. He was great. Richard was great. I mean, you know, pretty menacing guy. He was a sweetheart of a guy, you know. But nice guy, you know. But another Hollywood, another crazed actor, you know. <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of nutty people in showbiz, you know. Okay, we're back. Thanks to Mr. Thomerson for taking the time to talk. Also, our old pal Fred Fritz for helping to set that up. And you can hear more from Fred on our Free Jack episode and Mean Guns episode. And also, we talked about Mr. Thomerson before on Near Dark. Remember that, Mr. White? And that's also available at projection-booth.com. Do you think that Transfers holds up? I know this was your first time seeing this, Rob. Do you think that this kind of cheapy sci-fi film from 84, is it worth a look today? When I watch it again, yeah, it's fun. And like I said, I really think that it is the the acting that helps to pull it through. Because if it was really bad B-movie acting, really low rent um, you know, on the casting, if he wasn't able to get decent actors, this, I think it wouldn't be as, uh, as interesting to watch. How about you, Jay? Going back and seeing this again after all these years, what do you think? Yeah, I would say it holds up because it doesn't hold up. Because it's very dated in, in a way that's charming. I mean, you can see... The influences from the era it was made uh, very clearly, uh, but it's not just a forgettable B-movie because of, as we keep saying, because of Tim Thomerson and Helen Hunt and their relationship makes the movie a lot more entertaining than it, it probably was originally conceived to be as. Is I'm sure it was just like a throwaway Terminator knockoff, but uh, it has something – it has a little spark of something more special because of – Uh, some of the writing and because of those two actors. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. An evil force took his life. An unearthly power has brought him back. He is a phantom, a wraith, a cosmic spirit given another chance. Uh, Are you new in town? Yeah. Who's the kid? I turned my back and the next second he was there. Like magic, almost. You ever seen one of those before? Nah, let's just add it to our collection. There's a kid out there using his car to kill people. Not that it's such a big deal, since it seems to be your gang he's got it in for. Hold on! Grab the shotgun, Mama Luca! Yeah. 
hear it and it ain't cool. What are you doing? Packard, stop Get it. in the car. What are you doing, man? Are you Get crazy? out of my face, Burger Boy. You wind up dead like your brother. right we're back next week with the wraith and you'll get to hear the rest of our interview with director mike marvin the man behind one of my favorite films hamburger the motion picture uh before we go i want to thank charles band and danny bilson for coming on the show and also tim thomerson and mr jay bauman of red letter media now jay what have you been up to over there sir uh, we're just continuing to make web videos, uh, and we're also in post-production on a feature film called Space Cop, which, oddly enough, is about a future cop that travels back in time. Uh, that's pretty much where the similarities to Trancers ends. But uh, yeah, we're doing that, and I've also started a daily vlog uh, on my YouTube channel, which is uh, just the Jay Bauman is one word. Just uh, a few little snippets every day about uh, whatever's on my mind. How did you and Mike and Rich at Red Letter kind of get together? Uh, oh, we met a long time ago. There was a, a message board dedicated to amateur film, which we were all doing at the time, shot on video movies. Um, and we kind of bonded over the fact that we were making fun of everyone else's movies. And I uh, realized we weren't too far apart from each other, so we just started shooting things together. Now, you guys are up in Wisconsin? Yeah, we're in Milwaukee. Actually, it's pronounced Milwaukee, which is Algonquin for the good land. I love the red letter uh, aesthetic that you guys have going. I love the reviews, and I like the kind of continuing storyline that you have, as well as the criticism. I find to be uh, very inspirational. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's that's kind of the goal is to not just talk about movies, but sort of uh, involve filmmaking in what we do. And uh, as for that, Mister Plinkett, uh, how is he to deal with? He oh, you know, I don't really talk to him. He stopped talking to me years ago, so. I, I, I'm uh, not associated with Mr. Plinkett anymore. I let Mike deal with him. That's probably for the best. He's a little rough around the edges. If nothing else, I'm looking forward to the next Star Wars and or Star Trek film to hear from Mr. Plinkett again. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens with Episode Seven. I really like what you guys did with uh, Interstellar, by the way. That was a terrific review. Oh, thank you. I don't even remember what we said. I just remember not feeling too strongly one way or the other about the movie. <laughs> and and then also enjoyed the, uh, the short, um, uh, I guess... Uh, boyhood redux that you guys did oh yes yeah it's it's more people seem to think that we're upset that that people are mad at us for not liking boyhood but it's really just more of a response to how passionate people are about liking boyhood and if you don't there's something wrong with you and that's just such a bizarre idea to me that there's no uh 
other way to look at the movie than unanimous praise. That just seems to be going on this year. Like, I just read this from film critic who was talking about how he got so much shit for not liking Selma from certain audiences, and then he gets shit from other audiences for not liking American Sniper. And it's like your review of something seems to be so personal for people so often. And it's like we've gone past, like, nerds and geeks getting upset about people's reviews and turning it into like even mainstream films it's just like come on you know everybody's got different opinions here guys no you're not allowed to like something or you're not allowed to dislike something anymore so then you just kind of damn it with faint praise i guess yeah it was good whatever interesting (laughs) all right (laughs) it was a really good popcorn film you know it's very unique it's very unique it was very interesting yeah, very unique. That just that term <laughs> bothers me so much. Do you guys know what unique means? I, I don't think yeah. anybody does anymore. It's one of uh, Bobby Ray Valent. Isn't it Bobby Ray Valentine's uh, daughters? My twin. Da- I got to buy shoes for my twin daughters. Monique and Unique, isn't it? Oh wow! <laughs> Trading places. You were going way back. For that one. <laughs> You're going past 1984. We might have to go down the line again to check that joke out. Oh, uh oh. Well, thank you so much, Jay, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. We'll have links over to where folks can stay up to date with you and Red Letter Media over at our website, projection-booth.com. So now, fellas, it's time to go down the line.
show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Try hairs for squids.